that it is etched on our minds, God, and chiseled upon our souls. And so, Father, would you help us, Lord, to carry your word with us this week, that, God, we would find times, many times, God, to be reminded of you and your word, and that, God, Lord, you would be glorified in our affections and in our thoughts. So, Father, be with us now. Lord, lead and guide and be glorified this morning. In Jesus' holy, precious name I pray. Amen. Church family, would you take God's word and join me in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Last week we were in verses 13 to 16. We saw here where Jesus calls His disciples, His followers, His people. He calls us to live out the Gospel by being salt and light in the world. He calls us to live out the Beatitudes of verses 3 to 12 so that the lost world around us would do what in verse 16? That they would see our good works and ultimately give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And so then, when you get to verse 17, our text this morning, there very much seems to be a a pretty dramatic shift in the tone of the text. It's almost like the scene changes a bit. Jesus goes from the Beatitudes and living out these Beatitudes as salt and light, now to verse 17, and Jesus explaining in verses 17 and 18 His relationship to the law of God. Why such a shift in the midst or in the tone of this Sermon on the Mount? If you let your eyes fall down through chapter 5, or if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you recall that as chapter 5 continues, Jesus is going to be teaching on various aspects of the law of God. Six times in the latter half of chapter 5, Jesus will say, you have heard it said, and then He will quote an aspect of the law. He will address anger and adultery, divorce, making false vows, retribution, and our relationship toward our enemies. Jesus will say, you have heard it said, and then he will follow that by saying, but I say to you. And we'll look as these verses come along, what is Jesus doing in that moment? But in verses 17 and 18, which serve as a bit of a prelude to that section, Jesus rightly anticipates that there will be some of his hearers who will think or they will say, now wait a minute. Jesus is doing away with the old law, the old law of Moses, and He's giving us some kind of new code of conduct by which we are supposed to live. It may even already be that Jesus has some opponents, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of His day. It it may already be that some of these opponents are already looking at Jesus and saying things about Him like, now, He's a false teacher. Don't listen to Him because look at what He's doing. He's trying to get rid of the law of Moses, which they prize and prioritize more than anything. And they will begin to call Him 
a blasphemer for teaching against God's law. With these realities in view, this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by addressing His own relationship to the law of God. Jesus begins with two very clear statements in verses 17 and 18. He begins by setting forth His relationship to what we now call the Old Testament. And in so doing, He also sets forth our relationship to the Old Testament law of God. For centuries, for centuries, Christians have been asking the question, what is our relationship to the Old Testament? It probably does not help us very much that our Bibles are sort of divided. So the left-hand side is the Old Testament Scriptures, to the right-hand side are the New Testament Scriptures. And we begin to think that somehow there is in fact a division that exists in the Word of God. And so therefore, as I think about all of the Bible, a division begins to work its way into my thoughts, in my heart, and my mind. Christians are asking questions like, since I am part of this New Testament age, the age of the church, since I am under God's covenant of grace, that then must mean, or does it mean then, that God's Old Testament law is now null and void? Some, throughout the centuries, have said that because Christ has come, and that because grace has come through Christ, that God's Old Testament law no longer has any bearing on our lives. This has led even some to espouse a heresy that says that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two completely different people, or at least acting in two very different ways, and that therefore... This Old Testament law of God has been replaced. Which then leads some others to say, since the Old Testament law has been replaced and I'm now under grace, it doesn't really matter how I live, right? If we're saved by God's grace and not by the works of the law, then it doesn't really matter how I live. We're safe in God's grace and we're all going to get to heaven when we die. And on and on and on, these massive questions Go. And beloved, these are massive questions. These are massive thoughts. You've thought things like this along the way. You've wondered, what do I do with the Old Testament law, especially when I'm reading in Leviticus and I got all this stuff going on? What do I do with that? The easiest thing to do is to say, well, that's old. Christ is new. Let's do the new thing, right? But again, Christ is making so plainly clear this morning that we do not do that. We do not have the right to do that. And if we try to do that, it comes with massive ramifications upon our lives. These are massive questions. And one sermon cannot rightly or completely mine the depths 
of this subject matter. However, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus is going to make one thing. This is what I want you just to hold on to. Jesus is going to make one thing absolutely clear in this text. And it is this, that He did not come to do away with God's law. He came to fulfill God's law because God's law is completely authoritative and it is the basis for all practical Christian living. He will say in verse 17 what? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Church, the key that unlocks our understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the relationship between law and grace, the key is this, that the entirety, the entirety of God's Word is pointing to and it is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you miss this, you will miss the point of Scripture. If you miss this, you will constantly be trying to pit law and grace against each other. If you miss this, you will inevitably believe the heresy that makes God one thing in the Old Testament and something different in the New. Miss this. And saints, you will never live out the call to be salt and light in this world. Everything hinges on our understanding of Jesus' relationship to God's law and therefore ours. Look at the text with me. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus could not be more clear. Let's see what he's telling us in his word this morning. Two truths regarding We'll frame it this way regarding the Old Testament. Jesus calls it the law and the prophets, kind of a summary of what we now call the Old Testament scriptures. I want us to think about and consider two truths here. Number one, in verse 17, the Old Testament, all of it, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. So one more time, verse 17, do not think. Don't suppose. Don't hold to this idea. Don't even begin to think about believing that I came, Jesus says, to abolish the law and the prophets. That is a false assumption. That is a false idea. That is a wrong belief. And right off the bat, Jesus is making clear that the law of God has gone nowhere. 
With all clarity, Jesus clears up all confusion and leaves no doubt about what he thinks about the law of God. With all clarity, he clears up any confusion about our own relationship to the law of God. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That word abolish, just full of of meaning there in verse 17. Two instances of that word, both instances meaning the same thing. In one sense, it, it means to destroy or it means to overthrow. To, to just absolutely tear down and bring to nothing. That's one sense of the word abolish. There's also another sense of the word abolish. It can also mean to unyoke or to unhitch as you would unyoke or unhitch oxen or horses. A few years ago, maybe five years or so, Andy Stanley, well-known communicator from Atlanta, Georgia. A few years ago, Andy Stanley gave a now infamous interview in which he said that Christians today need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. He said this, I'm convinced we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. So Stanley's saying, we represent Jesus better, more clearly, more effectively, if we just don't even bring up the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Just get rid of that completely. He would go on, there are other many facets of that interview, but they all point to one startling reality. Is that like so many others sitting in churches today, Andy Stanley, for one, believes that the Old Testament has no bearing on the lives of Christians today. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, responded this way, the church cannot unhitch from the Old Testament without unhitching from the gospel that Jesus preached. At the beginning of verse 17, Jesus makes entirely clear, I didn't come to do away with anything In the Old Testament. I did not come to do away on any level in concerning the law and the prophets. Again, this language law and the prophets is Christ's way. He will use this language repeatedly throughout the Gospels. It's his way of summarizing up what we now call our Old Testament scriptures. The first five books you recall of uh, the, the Word of God, the Torah, the law of God, and then Jesus is grouping all of the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures into the category of the prophets. Jesus is here stating what Paul would later pick up in Romans chapter 3 and verse 31 when he said, do we nullify the law through faith? Paul's question is, because we are now made, because we are and have always been made right with God through faith, does that mean That because Christ has come, that we just nullify the law? That we get rid of it? That we don't consider it? 
Paul says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul is picking up this same idea. Faithful, biblical preaching and teaching throughout the ages has always done the same. Just because we are made right with God through faith in Christ does not mean that the Old Testament law is now done away with. What does Jesus mean then when he says, I didn't come to abolish, but I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Don't think about that word fulfill as meaning bringing something to an end or completion, think about it in this way, to accomplish or perform fully. When Jesus says in verse 17, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, what He is saying is that I have come to accomplish, to perform fully the law of God. So then, in what way does Jesus accomplish In what way does he fully perform the law of God? And the answer to that question, beloved, is in every single way. In every single possible way, Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And without delving into a conversation this morning about all the various aspects of the law you have heard maybe in your reading or your study, others have kind of broken down and summarized the law into categories like the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law, without delving into all of that, let it suffice to say what Jesus is saying in verse 17. Every aspect of the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill it. And we could spend days, beloved, We could spend days scouring the Scriptures to see all the various ways that Jesus has fulfilled the law, but would you just consider one aspect with me this morning? Maybe one of the larger or maybe more noticeable aspects of the law. I want you to consider with me the sacrificial system within the law of God. And you recall in your reading that You start seeing this in early in Genesis, actually, and then it kind of begins to take some more shape in Exodus, and by the time you're getting into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, over and over and over again, you're seeing God's people called to offer yearly sacrifices and monthly sacrifices and and, and daily sacrifices, and on and on and on. The sacrificial system goes. All the while, it's reminding the people of who God is and who they are. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and what it takes for holy God and sinful man to be reconciled to one another. However, there's a bit of a problem. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Just to see here, how is it that Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial Law. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Here we find an issue. At least an issue in thinking that the blood of bulls and goats and rams and birds, that somehow that blood is actually going to atone for sin. 
Hebrews 10 verse 1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never be by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Look down to verse 10. By this will, it's referring to Jesus saying, I've come to do the will of God. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of whom? The body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Blood of bulls and goats can't do it, friends. Rivers upon rivers upon rivers upon rivers of animal sacrifices blood could never even begin to think about doing what one drop of the blood of Christ has done. Blood of bulls and goats cannot do it. It must be the blood of Christ. Think about the the Passover. Beautiful, glorious yearly sacrifice. Not even in offering the Passover lamb can sins be atoned for, but praise God. Then in 1 Corinthians 5-7, we read that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. What does it mean in verse 17 that Jesus has fulfilled not just the law, but also the prophets? All the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Him. All the promises that would come to Israel, God's people, through the Messiah, have come to them through Christ. Think about God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. David, you're going to have a son, and that son is going to give you an eternal kingdom. That fulfillment is in Christ, David's greater son. Think about all the prophecies of Isaiah, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 42, chapter 53, and on and on they go about the coming Messiah. They are fulfilled in Christ. We read this last week in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For as many as may be the promises of God in Him, they are what? They are yes. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Wherefore also by Him is our amen to the glory of God. Church, the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ because the entire Bible is about Christ. 
John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me, Jesus is saying. And do you remember that moment on the Emmaus Road? Jesus walking with these two disciples, they don't yet know who he is. Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. Alistair Begg has said this, we find Christ in all the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, He is predicted. In the Gospels, He is revealed. In Acts, He is preached. In the Epistles, He is explained. And in Revelation, He is expected. Because the whole Bible is about Christ. So friends, church, when you pick up your Bibles to read, to study, to hear from it, you are reading the story of how God redeems His people to Himself through Christ. We're going to see in just a moment why that really matters. But secondly, the Old Testament then is God's authoritative and binding word. The Old Testament, this is our second truth, is God's authoritative and binding word. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, follow the argument. Verse 17, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets because here in verse 18, they cannot be abolished. There's just one of many reasons. Here's why I didn't come to abolish them. Because they can't be abolished. They can't be done away with. You cannot unhitch yourself from the law and the prophets for they are God's authoritative and binding word. And it's important to note in verse 18 that Jesus is not trying to establish a length of time that the law and prophets will remain, but the fact that because they are God's law and prophets, they will remain. That's the point Jesus is making in verse 18. Because God is eternal, His Word is eternal. Because God is sovereign authority, His Word is authoritative. You can no more abolish the Word of God than you could somehow abolish God Himself. What is true of God is always true of His Word. Psalm 119, verse 89, forever O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but how long does the Word of God abide, saints, forever? Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words shall not pass away. Jesus is so serious about this. Look in verse 18. 
He's so serious about this that he says, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is fulfilled. That smallest letter is in reference to the smallest Greek letter, the iota. The stroke in verse 18 is referring to the little Hebrew dot or flourish. Just almost a, it almost looks like somebody just let the pen drag across the paper too long. Just a little flourish. Not even those things. No jots, no tittle will be abolished. It will all be fulfilled. Not even the smallest, seemingly insignificant detail of God's Word will go unfulfilled. None of God's law, none of His Word can be abolished or unfulfilled. And if you try to toss out any of the law or the prophets, you then have something less than the power of the Gospel which is able to save. If Christ be the fulfillment of it all, if it is all telling how God saves His people in Christ, if you remove it, if you, get away, if you do away with it, if you think, ah, that's not a big deal, that's not important, we'll get rid of that, then you see what you do, right? You undermine the power of Christ. You undermine the sufficiency of Christ. And so, no, we do not unhitch ourselves from any of God's Word. When God first gives His law to Moses on Mount Sinai, He intended for it to remain. It's no accident that the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the law of God, it's no accident that the law was literally etched in stone. That's not an insignificant detail. For God is saying in that act that He intends for His Word to remain forever. And if you and I are to be the children of God, if we are to receive the blessings of God, if we desire to dwell eternally in the kingdom of God, then you must keep the law of God. Consider this fact. Just hang with me. Consider this fact, because God's law is authoritative and binding, no one goes to heaven without perfectly keeping God's authoritative and binding law. And friends, this is where it matters that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled God's law. Because what is our problem? Our problem is sin. Our problem is that even if you have broken the law at one point, you are guilty of breaking it all. Every single person in the room on the planet that has lived, is living, will ever live, save Christ, is a perpetual lawbreaker. We have all violated God's holy standard in His law. But don't fool yourselves. It's not then that God looked at that and said, man, you know what? 
I might have been a little too strict. I, I, might, I might need to ease up. They're, they're, they all seem to be having some real trouble keeping this law. So maybe let me alter this thing a little bit. Maybe, maybe make it a little easier for them. Let me do away with some of its demands. No. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in the heavens. God requires that if we will dwell in His holy temple, we must keep His holy Word. And the only way, the only way for that to happen is that you come to faith in Christ. And by such faith in Christ, His perfect law-keeping righteousness is given to, imputed to you. And now, because of the merit of Christ, you are a perfect law-keeper in the eyes of God. You do not get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. You get to heaven by faith in Christ who kept and fulfilled every aspect of God's law. Friend, are you here today trying to do your best to get to heaven when you die? You're trying to do your best. Sometimes you even kind of side-eye your neighbor over there. I'm probably doing a little better than that guy, than that gal. So God's probably going to let me in when I get there. Friend, if that's where you are, you are in such grave danger. Utter ruinous danger. You cannot do enough if you got a million lifetimes. You must come to Christ. And please don't wait till tomorrow. Please do not be so arrogant as to think your life is in your hands. Your life is not. You must come to Christ today. You must believe who He is, what God's Word says about Him, and you must find your law-keeping righteousness in Christ. Christian, in a moment, once again, we get to come to the Lord's Supper table. How? How do we come to this and not be utterly struck down by a holy God? Saints, as you take the bread and the cup into your hands, As you do this in remembrance of Christ, remember this. Remember this. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill the law's demands. But only the work of Christ has made me holy and righteous in God's sight. All praise to him. All praise to him. And so we end with this. J.C. Ryle, the faithful Anglican bishop of the last 
couple of centuries, let us never listen to those who bid us to throw it aside as an obsolete, antiquated, useless book. The religion of the Old Testament is the germ of Christianity. The Old Testament is the Gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the Gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the Gospel in the blade. The New Testament is the Gospel in full ear. The saints in the Old Testament saw many things through a glass darkly, but they all looked by faith to the same Savior, and were led by the same Spirit as ourselves. These are no light matters. Much infidelity begins with an ignorant contempt of the Old Testament. Beloved, consider God's Word. Consider what it's telling us. Consider the one beautiful story from Genesis to Revelation. Come to faith in Christ. He alone is your righteousness. And church, do this in great remembrance of Him. Let's pray together. God, before we come, once again observe this beautiful ordinance together. God, we ask You to search us and to try us, to know us, to know our hearts. God, we ask You to see if there be any unclean way inside of us. God, we ask You to bring us to repentance of sin. Confession and repentance of sin. God, we ask of You that if there is anyone in the room who's trying to get to heaven by their own merit, thinking that they can, Oh God, remind them, show them, break into their lives, God, and reveal the necessity of Christ. And God, may they cling to Christ. Cling to the cross of Christ and find in Him righteousness, life, obedience God we also ask this morning that you would help us God to see our sin God to see how God sometimes we live as though your law is not binding upon us we're flippant about how we live, careless. We readily disobey your commands because it makes us feel good, because we're wise in our own eyes.
God, remind us of the holy life that you've called us to live, the separate and set-apart life you've called us to live. You know, God, before we take these elements into our hands, God, that we would find ourselves having confessed and repented of our sins. God, as we think about these things together, as we reflect on Your Word, even while observing the Lord's Supper, oh God, we rejoice in the Gospel. Father, we rejoice in the news that we have violated Your holiness and we have died. Christ has come and through His life, death, burial, resurrection, Oh God, we live. God, may we not be flippant in how we approach this moment of worship. We ask and we pray all these things in Christ's great name. Amen.